0: welcome to the julia curated podcast hi i'm your host julia and this is an informative and entertaining home and lifestyle podcast where we deep dive into one interesting topic each week sometimes i invite informed co-hosts on to share their important viewpoints and sometimes you are stuck with just me but whatever form of fashion this might come in, I hope you leave with a good random fact or two that you can drop to a stranger you meet standing at the bus stop. And as you do, you get to looking at his eyes. You notice that they are beautiful blue with flecks of yellow near the center. You also start to realize that you love the tone of his voice and the way he laughs. You tuck a strand of hair behind your ear and look down at your shoes, something you never do. Who is this guy? And why does it feel like like floating. And so, without further ado, I give you this week's episode titled, Love, Goat Flesh Spankings, Unspeakable Foreign Languages, and Political Unrest. So what is love? I did what any self-respecting woman would do. I flipped open my laptop, headed to Google, and typed in, what is love? And guess what I found? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Yes, for all of you out there wondering what Google's number one answer to that timeless question is, the answer is the melodic, chaotic tune of 1993. And if you were born in the 80s, there is no way you didn't have some core memory tied to that song. For me, it was skating around in the local skating ring trying to catch the eye of a boy entirely too old for me. But I was really convinced that my white sparkle skates would do all the work. Spoiler alert, they didn't. So, the question still remains what is love? Well, since Shakespeare himself couldn't answer it, I highly doubt we will be able to. But what we will do is look into the history of love's official day, Valentine's Day. We will also explore the five love languages, and we will end the episode with a deep dive into a wonderful love story of Richard and Mildred Loving, a biracial couple from my home state of Virginia whose love story broke boundaries, changed laws, and to this day stands as one of the most influential love stories to affect modern politics. So let's get started. Our first task is to eat a whole bunch of chalky heart-shaped candy and learn more about this frivolous holiday we call Valentine's Day. The history comes to us from none other than history.com. Valentine's Day occurs every February 14th. And across the United States and in other places around the world, candy, flowers, and gifts are exchanged between loved ones in the name of St. Valentine. But who is this mysterious saint and where do these traditions come from? Let's look into the legend of St. Valentine, the patron saint of Valentine's Day. And just to give you a heads up, it's tragic and bloody, which ironically can also be synonymous with love. If you know, you know, you know, I think we've all been stomped on stamped on drug around in the arena of love anyways moving forward the catholic church recognizes at least three different saints named valentine or valentinius all of whom were martyred one legend contends that valentine was a priest who served during the third century in rome when emperor claudius ii decided that single men made better soldiers than those with wives and families so claudius outlawed marriages for young men valentine realizing the injustice of the decree defied claudius and continued to perform marriages for young lovers in secret when Valentine's actions were discovered, Claudius ordered that he be put to death. Still, others insist that it was Saint Valentine of Turini, a bishop, who was the true namesake of the holiday, but he too was beheaded by Claudius II outside of Rome. So it was a bad time to be named Valentine or Valentinius. And I think it's safe to say at this point that Claudius is a love's, you know, official protagonist. He is not getting any Valentine's, okay? No one's holding his hand. History.com goes on to say that other stories suggest that Valentine may have been killed for attempting to help Christians escape harsh Roman prisons, where they were often beaten and tortured. According to one legend, an imprisoned Valentine actually sent the first Valentine greeting himself after he fell in love with a young girl, rumored to be the jailer's daughter. We don't know, but it was a woman who visited him during his confinement. Before his death, it is alleged that he wrote her a letter signed From Your Valentine, an expression that is still in use today. Although the truth behind the Valentine legends is murky, the stories all emphasize his appeal as a sympathetic, heroic, and most importantly, romantic figure. So why do we celebrate in February? Well, it could be one of two things, or both. It depends on who you are. St. Valentine, one of them, was killed in the middle of February. But interestingly enough, there is also a pagan holiday called Lupercalia. And y'all, this holiday... (laughs) It was freaking wild. Okay. So according to history.com, the Christian church may have decided to place St. Valentine's feast day in the middle of February in an effort to quote unquote, Christianize the pagan holiday, the pagan celebration, Lupercalia. It was celebrated on the Ides of February or February 15th. And Lupercalia was a fertility festival dedicated to Faunus, the Roman God of agriculture, as well as the Roman founders Romulus and Remus. So I think it was his daddy, or maybe the baby daddy. We don't know. To begin the festival, back in ancient times, member of the Luperci, an order of Roman priests, would gather at the sacred cave where the infants Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome, were believed to have been cared for by a she-wolf or a lupa. You see where the the front part of that word comes from? Luperci. Lupercalia, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, but as per usual, if you're new here, I can barely pronounce my name. The priests would sacrifice a goat for fertility and a dog for purification. They would then strip the goat's hide into strips, dip them in sacrificial blood, and take to the streets, gently slapping both women and crop fields with the goat hides. Okay, 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 okay. I'm, I'm sitting in my kitchen, I'm baking some bread, and some priest comes knocking on the door, holding a damn flank of goat that's covered in blood. He's not getting anywhere near me. Far from being fearful, Roman women welcomed the touch of the hides because it was believed to make them more fertile in the coming year. Later in the day, according to legend, after you've been gently slapped with a goat, the young women in the city would place their names in a big urn. The city's bachelors would then choose a name and become paired for the year with his chosen woman. And these matches often ended in marriage. So you stroll on down to the city center smelling like goat and throw your name in the hat, which sounds a lot like Harry Potter. And then you see who your boyfriend's going to be for a year. Everyone does it differently. That's all I'm saying. Like, however, girl, however you got to find love, that's, that's how you got to do it. I'm, I'm all for love. So maybe we should bring this back. If it ended in success, why not try it? We have all these crazy reality TV shows. This just sounds like the next one in the lineup. NBC, ABC, where you at? Now, speaking of names, and while the urn in town square sounds lovely, I bet some of you might be able to guess where I'm going with this. Maybe a name written on a big red heart, trimmed in lace and laid atop of a 12-piece stale chocolate set from the drugstore. Yep, let's talk Valentine's. Now, one fact that I found while researching was that Valentine's Day really took hold, especially the commercialization of the holiday, during the Middle Ages, That is not the time in history that I would have ever associated with love. When I think middle ages, I'm thinking more of like plague, bad sanitation, catacombs, um, chain mesh, which I mean, it depends on what you're into because that could totally scream Valentine's Day and and lovemaking. But moving on. According to history.com, written Valentine's didn't begin to appear until after 1400. The oldest known Valentine still in existence today was a poem written in 1415 by Charles Duke of Orleans to his wife. Now get how cool this is. I did some digging. First of all, Charles Duke of Orleans was imprisoned for a very long time. So through Charles's reign and then into Henry's, Henry, he's the one that beheaded everyone. If you don't know about that, go ahead and Google it. It is wild. During that long time, though, Charles, Duke of Orleans, became very educated while sitting in the Tower of London and produced numerous poems, both in English and French. Most of these poems are hailed today as some of the best and most important works of the medieval time period. And if you think his mark on history ends there, it doesn't. He gets out of jail, goes to France, marries a 14-year-old. I know, gross, but totally common at the time. And they have King Louis XII, who was king of France from 1498 to 1515. So while the first recorded Valentine wasn't in direct correlation with the future king of France, it's still pretty cool about love and adventure and imprisonment. Charles, Duke of Orleans, he did some stuff. He saw some things. He made some kings. So another funny thing, but maybe not so funny, Valentine, is that King Henry denied bail of Charles, Duke of Orleans, but perhaps he read his works while he was being imprisoned because at the time, King Henry, who had just been handed the throne, commissioned a writer to write a valentine to his new wife, Catherine. And I wonder what that valentine said. I mean, dearest Catherine, I love you and I promise I won't cut off your head, at least not yet. P.S. Give me a son. Chop, chop. Ha ha, ha ha. That was a beheading joke. Love your douchebag King, King Henry. That's what I imagine it said. Okay, so let's speed through history a little bit all the way to the 17th century, a.k.a. the 1600s, where Valentine's Day became a regularly scheduled program. And by the middle of the 18th century, it was common for friends and lovers of all social classes to exchange small tokens of affection or handwritten notes. 1900 rolls around and printed cards begin to replace written letters due to improvements in printing technology. Ready-made cards were an easy way for people to express their emotions at a time when direct expression of one's feeling was extremely discouraged. This is perhaps my favorite thing about this time period and the history of the Valentine. But during the Victorian era, which is about 1830s to 1900s, when things were becoming easier to produce and mass produce, the Victorians, who were a bunch of repressed, angsty, corseted folks, decided that they needed to send what was known as vinegar valentines and go ahead and loosen the corset you might be wearing and get ready to laugh because, oh my God, these are hilarious. I'll go through a few of them and I'll what I'll do is I'll describe what they look like and then read them to you, Okay so let's put on our visualization caps, shall we? All right, we'll start with this one. So a woman holds a very large lemon and she's inside profile. Her hair is swept up into a Gibson girl hairstyle and on the lemon, it says to my Valentine. And the lemon is pointed at this man who stands in the lower frame of the Valentine with his mouth open. He's holding his hat and he's Almost like holding up his hand to be like, please don't squish me with this lemon. At the bottom, it says, tis a lemon that I hand to you and bid you now skidoo because I love another and there is no chance for you. Ice cold. She's got ice in her veins. All right, let's go to this one. All right, so this one, and and y'all go on over to the Instagram because I will put these the Instagram. I just said that like a grandma. Go over to Instagram. I will put these in my stories so you can see them. They are all wonderful, and and I feel like you might need to see them. But this is a suffrage vinegar Valentine, circa 1840s. All right. So you have a suffragette who's standing there, and um, she's got a flagpole in her hand that says suffragette. She's got one hand placed on the top hat of what looks like a young child, who has an arrow pointed at his lower extremities and she's kind of leaning away like she's about to say something. And uh, before we get into this, a a lot of these are, are attacks upon suffragettes because everyone thought it was so funny to give the woman the vote. So bear with the not funniness of this. All right. So this one says, you may think it fun, poor Cupid to snub with the hand of a suffragette but he's cunning and smart. I ah, there's the rub. Revenge is the trap he will set. So who knows what that means, but I have a feeling looking at this and reading that, that they were trying to be like, oh, you have your come up comeuppance coming. You should be in the home and stop being on your soapbox. That's what I'm guessing. Okay. This next one, another, another one pointed at women. All right. So a woman stands in the frame. She's got a big top top hat on with the feather. If you don't know what the feather in a top hat means, think of Yankee Doodle Dandy. Most of the time, artists use this to kind of say that there is a bit of a a sexual adventurer. So this woman, because of the, the feather in her hat, is Maybe maybe it's trying to say that she is a little bit loose with her morals, but she stands there. Yeah, she's just standing with her feet, and she's got a very long sort of maybe sword or um, something in her hand, like like looks like a needle. Anyways, this one says, <laughs> oh, man, the 1840s were a rough time for women. I'm just going to say that. While you ladies seem bent on getting ahead, as your, quote, women's right, fightings declare we men are believing you'll find out instead that your fussing will all end in air such a coffer you offer no lovers will win your heads are so well furnished okay well first of all that was obviously written by a man with zero to no poetic prowess all right he gets a he gets a failing d on that one do we have any fun ones coming up okay <laughs> here's another one A women's right vinegar Valentine circa 1840s. Again, man, don't time travel to this time, y'all. It would be a bad, it's a bad look. Oh boy. All right. So this woman is standing here. She's comically drawn. She's got a sewing needle stuck in her hat um, and she's got a very elaborate hat on, glasses, round glasses, and her face is very... She's made to look not so pretty with a long extended neck, uh, kind of saggy eyes. And um, behind her, so on her sash, it says women's rights and she's holding a ballad. Behind her, you see a ballad box. And on the other side of her, you see a baby or maybe a woman standing over a baby and then a, a little baby sitting down and like reaching for this woman. Okay. And the, the Vinegar Valentine says this, and I quote, to a modern woman, you've got the vote and think it's your mission to go to the polls like a bum politician. And while you are voting, your husband must roam for something to eat, which he can't find a home. He's getting dyspepsia and can't work for pain. Your children neglected and for you in vain. While you make speeches from a broken soap box, your family is wearing soiled clothes and torn socks. Oh, so sad. So, so sad. All these women were trying to do is be like, hey, we just want to like voice our opinions and we're allowed to be educated, but we're not allowed to participate. What's up with that? Anyways, all right, here's another one. Let's kick out of that that hateful stuff. This one that comes to us from 1875, you've got a woman who is throwing a pan, a tin of like water at this man whose top hat has blown off. He's got some pretty like modern looking pants on because I've seen these recently circulating on the TikTok. Um, he's, he's got his hand up on his forehead and he just looks like he's having a bad day. And she looks like she's having a damn ball. Whatever she's throwing at him, she's like, this is, this is what I wanted all day long. Okay. <laughs> this one says, here's a pretty cool reception. Okay. She's throwing cold water. All right. It makes sense now. Here's a pretty cool reception. At least you'll say there's no deception. It says as plain as it can say, old fellow, you'd best stop away. But I think it means stay away you best stop away. So he was trying to call on her and she was like, mm, I'm just going to throw this, this water on your face and get you to get, get going. Okay. Oh, here's a heartbreaking one. <laughs> All right. Okay. So this one is an attack. It's, again, 1875 on the woman who reads too much. Well, I this is me. So basically this is me. If somebody in in society saw me, they'd be like, this is this is the Valentine I'm going to get for you. Okay. There's a woman standing there. She's got a bunch of books tied up underneath her, her arm. She looks haggard. Like she has stayed up all night reading and she's holding one open with her thumb. Um, and there's a, there's some sort of symbol. I can't remember it for art history, but there's some, the thumb in a page means something. I'll put it in the show notes if I remember it. But anyways, okay. So this one says, Pray, do you ever mend your clothes or comb your hair Well, I suppose you've got no time for people say you're reading novels all day? Yeah, because I'm educated and I like to entertain myself and y'all are boring and you don't know how to love. How about that? That's what that woman said in the Valentine. That's what I'm, I'm guessing. Okay, we're back to the man with the top hat and the fancy pants. 1875, he's leaning on a pole, he's like holding his chest and he looks like real sick. And his pocket watch has fallen out. Um, He's like really ruddied in the face. Okay. Oh, (laughs) it's because he's wasted. (laughs) All right. All right. So he's leaning up against the pole because he's obviously, he's had one too many. The kiss of the bottle is your heart's delight and fuddled you real home to bed every night. What care you for damsels, no matter how fair? Apart from your liquor, there's no love to spare. All right. Well, at least they're picking on the men too. I was getting worried there. All right. Oh, I don't like this next one. Oh, I don't like it at all. Okay. Oy vey. All right. <laughs> how do I explain this to y'all? All right. This is like a goat man. Mm-mm, mm-mm, I don't like it. Okay. This is like a man. This is like an elf and he's, yeah, he's definitely an elf. Okay. Cause he's got pointy ears and pointy shoes. He's kind of in like an arabesque. If you took ballet, if you were one of the, one of the girls whose mother forced to take ballet, um, I loved it, but my mom did have to convince me, but anywho, an arabesque and he's holding a lantern in one hand and he's making like a who sign with his mouth, like a Hoo-hoo, like um, like an O, and uh, there's not a lot else going on here. Let's read what this one says. This is completely confusing. Okay, this one's 1880. If I should follow you, old boy, a nice mess I'd be in, and a likeness true I take you with a sort of lurid grin. Such a comical mug might lead one astray, yet loving you, there'd be the devil to pay. You lead me a dance, such a damnable jib. That for you, my old joker, I don't care a wig. Okay, so he's obviously the devil. And this woman is saying like, you might be charming and hot, even though this thing on this card does not look hot. But if I were to take you up on that dance, I would be, I would be up, you know, Poops Creek without a paddle. If I were to get this in the mail, I'd be scared and I'd lock my doors. Okay, we're going to round this out with 1900. Here is a little girl standing on top of a soap box with votes for women sash. And then there's a little boy standing below rubbing his eyes like he's just the saddest little thing. Reminds me of my son, which makes me sad. (laughs) So this one just says not a chance. This little girl is just like, look, I got to get these votes. I'll love you later. I'll love you later. Ah, oh, those angsty Victorians. If only they had a book to help them figure out how they were feeling and the best way to express themselves. Modern day society is lucky in that sense, thanks to a book phenomenon that came to be in the early 1990s. I remember this book. I remember this book before I had any notion about what love was and why it would need five languages. So you guessed it. We are going to explore this pivotal, life-changing, society-altering book by Gary Chapman. If you haven't heard of this book, I would like to know what lovely remote island you have been tanning on because it is literally everywhere. It kicked off in 1992, but it has become popularized today on TikTok, like everything else, right? It has only gained popularity since its beginning, and it regularly sells between 7,000 and 11,000 copies per week. Per week, let me say it again, per week. And I think that goes to show that love is a mystery to all of us and will continue to be so until the end of time. But getting back to this helpful book written by Mr. Chapman. Chapman was a Southern Baptist pastor who came up with the love languages after decades of ferrying couples through hardships at Calvary Baptist Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He says his marriage counseling was something that he quote-unquote was pushed into after becoming a pastor. He says, over and over, couples were sitting in my office, and one would say, I feel like you don't love me, and the other one would say, I don't get that. He also confessed that him and his wife were struggling at home, trying to figure out how to love each other and create peace. Through all of these experiences, he began to draw connections. He wrote them down, he analyzed them, and through that process, the five love languages we know today were born. So what are they and how do you find yours as well as your partners? Chapman suggests that to discover another person's love language, one must observe the way they express love to others and analyze why and what they complain about most often and what they request from their significant other most often. So this sounds like to me is all we have to do is listen. He theorizes that people tend to naturally give love in the way that they would prefer to receive love. And better communication between couples can be accomplished when one can demonstrate caring to the other person in the love language the recipients understand. Okay, so here's an example. And this is a really dulled down version because as we know, it's it's always more complex than this. But an example would be if a husband's love language is acts of service. He may be confused when he does the laundry and his wife does not perceive that as an act of love. She's just viewing it as simply performing household duties because the love language that she, the wife, comprehends is another love language, AKA words of affirmation. This is verbal affirmation that he loves her. So his is acts of service. Hers is verbal words of affirmation. She may try to use what she values, words of affirmation, to express her love to him. Honey, I love you and thank you so much for doing the laundry, schnookums. You look great in those jeans, okay? So that's what she said. And he's sitting there like, yeah, thanks, but where's my acts of service? So if she understands his love language and mows the lawn for him, he perceives it in his love language, as an act of expressing her love for him. And likewise, if he tells her that she looks great in those jeans, then she values and sees that as an act of love. So basically, however you like to be spoken to is is a good indicator of of your love language and how you express love and vice versa. Vice versa. What's that word? You know what I mean. Moving on. So round this out. Basically, if you notice that your wife or husband or partner or whatever asks about what you would like for dinner and then proceeds to make it, their love language might be access service as well. We treat others as we like to be treated, right? It's an age-old saying that Chapman states that it should be applied, especially in the arena of love. So other than doing dishes and saying that you look good in jeans, what are the actual love languages? The first one... And and this is not in a quantifying um, list. This doesn't mean number one is the best, number two. No, there's five of them. So we're going to go through them. Words of affirmation, aka compliments, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. Let's dissect each one of these. Actually, let's let mindbodygreen.com do it for us since that was the website that I found where they laid it out in a way in which I completely understood. So words of affirmation, people with words of affirmation as a love language value verbal acknowledgement of affection, including frequent I love yous, compliments, words of appreciation, verbal encouragement, and often frequent digital communication like texting and social media engagement. So if you've ever dated somebody who was like, oh my God, he did not like my picture, we're doomed and we're going to go to Splitsville. Her love language was probably like words of affirmation. She's going to need you to hit that heart. You get what I'm saying? You're picking up what I'm putting down. Okay. Number two, quality time. People whose love language is quality time feel the most adored when their partner actively wants to spend time with them and is always down to hang out. They particularly love when active listening, eye contact, and full presence are prioritized hallmarks in the relationship. All right. So this love language is all about giving your undivided attention to the one special person without the distraction of television, phones, or any outside interference. They have a strong desire to actively spend time with their significant other, having meaningful conversations and sharing recreational activities. The third love language is acts of service. Acts of service is when you value that your partner goes out of their way to make your life easier. If things like bringing you soup when you're sick, making coffee for you in the morning, or picking up your dry cleaning when you've had a busy day, this love language is for people who believe that actions speak louder than words. Unlike those who prefer to hear how much they're cared for, people on this list like to be shown how they're appreciated. Doing the smaller and bigger chores to make their lives easier or more comfortable is highly cherished by these folks. So this is me. This is 1,000% me. This is 100,000,000% of me. I don't know how what decibel I need. This is me to the moon. I give love in this way and I receive love best in this way, hands down. Okay. Now this is also me. I'm all of a sudden this podcast is all about me and my love language. I'm so sorry. Moving on. Number four, four is gifts. Gifts is a pretty straightforward love language. You feel loved when people give you visual symbols of love. It's not about the monetary value, but the symbolic thought behind the people with this style recognize and value the gift giving process, the emotional benefits that come from receiving the present people whose love language is receiving gifts, enjoy being gifted Something that is both physical and meaningful. The key is to give meaningful things that matter to them and reflect their values, not necessarily yours, right? I mean, this is like the number one thing about gift giving. And I can't remember who told me this, but I feel like the art of gift giving really lies in the fact that you take time to think about the person. That's the core of a good gift. If you meditate on the person's personality, about what colors would look good on them, about how they would interact with this item. You're thinking about them in a cherished way. That's what I love about gift giving. That's why I love to give gifts because I like to, I like to dote on people, right? But I also just, it's a challenge, but it's a challenge in like a beautiful, meaningful way. So anyways, number five, the last and final. Bum 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 or bounce chicken wah, wah. physical touch. People with physical touch as their love language feel loved when they receive physical signs of affection, including kissing, holding hands, cuddling on the couch, and if children are listening, please close their little baby ears. The sexes, physical intimacy and touch can be incredibly affirming and serve as a powerful emotional connector for people with this love language. The roots go back to our childhood. This one website notes. Some people often feel deep affection and love by their parents when they were held, kissed, or touched. People who communicate their appreciation through this love language, when they consent to it, feel appreciated when they are hugged, kissed, or cuddled. They value the feeling of warmth and comfort that comes with physical touch. Now, you can easily go online and find a test to determine what your primary and secondary love languages are. There's a lot of them out there, a lot of tests. There's only five love languages, but there's a lot of tests. But you can also just analyze how you show love, and as we've already gone over, my primary is acts of service, followed closely by gifts. From the love languages to a love that changed the language of a country if you haven't heard before the story of the lovings, you're about to. They grace the pages of modern day history books. Their story has been turned into a big screen feature, but most importantly, their love cleared the way for countless generations to have the freedom to love, regardless of race, color, or creed. This fight for love began intensely in the early morning hours of July 11th 1958 when Richard and Mildred Loving were sleeping soundly in their beds. Suddenly their bedroom door swung open and three men stood over them, shining flashlights in their faces. An angry voice rang out asking, what are you doing in bed with this woman? And Mildred being the calm spirit that she was, she said, I'm his wife. The men did not seem to agree. Richard pointed to their marriage certificate up on the wall to which the police officer responded. That's no good here. They were handcuffed and thrown in jail for violating the Racial Integrity Act of 1924, which forbade interracial marriage. History.com reports from there that Richard spent a night in jail before being released on a $1,000 bond that his sister procured and Mildred was not allowed a bond. She spent three nights alone in the small woman's cell that only fit one And when she was finally released, it was into her father's care. After the couple pled guilty, the presiding judge, Leon Bazil gave them a choice, leave Virginia for 25 years or go directly to prison. They left and would spend the next nine years in exile. A little bit of backstory to them. The Lovings first met when Mildred was 11 and Richard was 17. He was a family friend, but their dating courtship didn't really begin until years later. Growing up about three or four miles apart, they were raised in a relatively mixed community that saw themselves as a family, regardless of race, often coming together over music and drag racing. It was not uncommon for people of different races to intermingle, work together, and sometimes date. Mildred's mother was part Rappahannock Indian, and her father was part Cherokee. So she later identified as more Indian. Richard and Mildred dated on and off for a couple years before they decided to get married after Mildred became pregnant. Mildred already had a first child from another relationship. The Lovings traveled to Washington DC to marry where interracial marriage was legal and it was the nation's capital that they would later return to when they were forced to leave Virginia. Leaving behind their family and friends, the Lovings attempted to make a life in Washington DC, but they never felt at home. Mildred did not adapt to city life. She was a country girl who was used to royal areas, large spaces, room for kids to play. And wanting to see family, the Lovings would defy the court order and periodically return to Virginia. As they were not allowed to return together, they would take precautions not to be seen. They would drive separately. They would pretty much just sneak in and out between state lines. In the backdrop of the Loving struggle, the civil rights movement was taking root, While the Lovings were too preoccupied with their own hardships to be involved, they were inspired by the activism they saw. In 1964, Mildred wrote to Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy for help. Yes, that Robert F. Kennedy. Kennedy told her to contact the American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU lawyers Bernard S. Cohen and Philip J. Hirschkop, and they eagerly took the case. The case made its way to the United States Supreme Court, where oral arguments began on April 10, 1967. Philip Hirschkop wasn't qualified to try a case in front of a court since he was only out of law school a little over two years, a year shy of the requirement. This meant anything that he wrote would have to be signed off by Bernard Cohen, who had been out of law school over three years, but had no experience in federal court these two novice lawyers understood that they were arguing one of the most important constitutional law cases ever to come before the court. When asked her thoughts on the case before oral arguments began, Mildred said this, it's the principle. It's the law. I don't think it's right. If we do win, we will be helping a lot of people. I know we have some enemies, but we have some friends too so it doesn't really make any difference about my enemies. Neither of the lovings appeared in court, but Richard did send a letter to lawyers that read this. Tell the court I love my wife, and it's just not fair that I cannot live with her in Virginia. The judges agreed. In a unanimous decision handed down on June 12, 1967, laws banning interracial marriage were deemed unconstitutional overturning them in 16 states. It took nine years, but Lovings were finally legally home. They built a house together on an acre of land Richard's father had given them. Eight years later, the Lovings were hit by a drunk driver while driving home on Saturday night. Richard was killed and Mildred never remarried, but she stayed in the home Richard built, surrounded by her family and friends. Mildred went on and lived a quiet, private life, declining interviews, and staying clear out of the spotlight. She did, however, make a rare exception in June of 2007. On the 40th anniversary of Loving v. Virginia ruling, three people working on behalf of the gay rights group Faith in America came to Mildred for her thoughts on same-sex marriage. After careful reflection and discussions with neighbors and her children, the devoutly religious Mildred issued a statement that read in part, I believe all Americans, no matter their race, no matter their sex, no matter their sexual orientation, should have the same freedoms to marry. Government has no business imposing some people's religious beliefs over others, especially if it denies people's civil rights. There is little doubt about Mildred and Richard's legacy. There is an unofficial celebration on June 12th called Loving Day, honoring the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision and the multiculturalism. Loving v. Virginia declared anti-miscegenation laws to be illegal across the United States, but perhaps even more importantly, is the legacy of an everlasting love. So I shall leave you with this on this beautiful Valentine's Day. Love is often and as wildly as you can. Believe in it, give it, receive it, get slapped by a goat for it, whatever it takes. And in the famous words of one and only Joan Crawford, love is a fire, but whether it's going to warm your heart or burn down your house, you never can tell. I fell into a burning ring of fire.